And I had all this anxiety that Leah Betts was in hospital and it was on the news, it was a massive big deal. And it was the same kind of pill that she'd taken. I still took it. And as soon as the drug took effect, it was, you know, one of the best moments of my life I'd ever had. And I'd had every blood test possible because I was convinced it must be like a vitamin deficiency. It's making me feel like this. It couldn't be the breakfast wine. It's, it's so common that we're so dishonest with ourselves and with other people. I go to bed at night with clean teeth in clean sheets, not riddled with fear and self-loathing. Hello and welcome to 12 Steps and 12 Questions. My name is Silvio and I'm an addict. This pod is full of personal and inspirational stories of recovery from addiction. And in every episode, I'll ask each guest the same 12 questions about their life, addiction and recovery. Quick warning, there will be some graphic descriptions and a healthy amount of swearing. For this episode, please welcome Charlotte. Charlotte, thank you so much for coming around and agreeing to doing an episode of 12 Steps and 12 Questions with me today. Would you like to introduce yourself quickly and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, thank you for asking me. I, I sort of mean that, as I say it, because I am always happy to do service and to carry a message, but I do also get that little thought before I do it each time of, what am I going to say? But I don't, I don't need to worry about that. I just need to show up and answer these questions and have a nice chat about recovery. So my name is Charlotte. I'm an addict and an alcoholic. Uh, I've been in recovery for four years this week. I had an anniversary. Well done. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm the kind of addict that told a lot of lies. So when I say I'm four years clean and sober, there's a part of me that goes, am I? Um, because while I was using, that's the sort of thing that I, I would have um, claimed I was doing and, and not have been doing. So it's it's nice to be able to sit here and, and say that. And it, it's nice to come and talk about it, yeah. to be honest. Brilliant. Um, so, yeah, thank Brilliant. you for asking me. Let's move straight into question one, which is, did you have any adverse childhood experiences? So the simple answer is no. Um, actually, I came from a comfortable upbringing. Um, I came from a safe home. And in recovery and hearing other people's stories, I've come to see actually what a privilege that is. Um, and I think before coming into the rooms and when I first did, that was something I used to differentiate myself from the idea of what an addict is because I associate um, coping with trauma as being sort of a key identifier maybe of what I thought an addict would be. Um, so not having that. I think I felt a lot of guilt, actually. I felt a lot of guilt that I grew up with a lot of opportunity um, and there wasn't what I would have considered a reason for turning to drink and drugs, um, but that I did anyway. Um, and that, you know, I did feel safe and I felt loved and I felt supported. Uh, I'm not saying I had like a fairy tale upbringing. I didn't. My parents are normal people, you know, there were highs and lows, but um, there was definitely no kind of traumatic events um but i did have a head that from a very young age um created drama and noise that i couldn't tune out so an example would be say my fifth or sixth birthday party i can remember being very excited about it and what i was going to wear which won't surprise you uh sylvia <laughs> knows i i love i love uh, dressing up and uh that that is a big part of my character but um yeah I remember being excited about who was coming to the party and what I would wear and um we made these little kind of um, party bags that people would take home and almost as soon as people got there I would sit, I sat upstairs and just couldn't wait for everyone to go home because the the expectation of of something good happening was always greater for me than the moment was. And I found it very hard to be in the present. You know, I'd look forward to things or I'd dread things or I'd regret things or I'd overplay things, but I was very rarely in the present. So there were no kind of traumatic events in my life, but I can identify that my head was already in this place of creating issues from, yeah, a very young age indeed. Mm, mm. It's interesting you speak of key identifiers and we all have those, before we come into the rooms, we all have those mm. ideas about what it 
an addict should look like. And for me, it was particularly people who might be homeless, people who you, mm-hmm. you know who have nothing of what I would, what people would consider a normal life, quote unquote, left. Yeah, so be homeless, have no job or whatever. So all that is left is the addiction, so to speak. And but coming from quote unquote a broken home. Mm-hmm. It's often also used as a key identifier. You're right. It is, yeah. Mm. Um, and I think I didn't want to identify as an addict or an alcoholic. Um, I think those terms come with a lot of baggage, you know. And actually now when I say that, when I say it at the beginning of a meeting or when I meet people, um, I like it because it's it it now that I know that's what I am, I know what I have to do to not drink or use on a daily basis. So there's a lot of freedom and relief that comes with it. But I think, much like you just said, uh, I picture an alcoholic as being a park bench drinker and, yeah, probably homeless. And uh, drug addicts would only be, say, intravenous users, which I wasn't. Um, and these were all things that conveniently meant I couldn't possibly be an addict or an alcoholic. So I didn't have to come in and do the work. Or make these big scary changes um that i definitely found it more comfortable being uncomfortable than the idea of making change because what if it what if it didn't work or what if it did work <laughs> so here you are you are you've got a quote-unquote funny head you know <laughs> but you, you're coming from as you said a good home nonetheless at some point and this brings us to question two you pick up drugs and Let's let's go there for a moment. What did the moment that you got hooked? What did the moment, the fun times? What did they look like? I mean, I think it is important to remember that it wasn't all bad from day dot. You know, we wouldn't have kept doing it if it was. Um, and prior to drinking drugs, uh, I can definitely look at relationships with food or friendships. I was very uh, possessive of friends or wanting them to like me more than they did other people or those kind of things. But I can very clearly remember in like my mid-teens going out drinking in Soho. I'm from London and I started going to bars and clubs, you know, young, like 14, 15. And I can remember my head had really been on me for a long period of time. And um, I'd been out drinking with some older friends, pints of cider and black, which was my tipple of choice at that, at that age. Um, and I'd done some speed. And as I was leaving to go home, I suddenly realised that my head had shut up. And it was, I can actually remember thinking, God, this is dangerous. I feel great. And that was like, I mean, I came into the rooms at 40. So that was a long time before um, I'd seen any of this as a problem. But I got what is described in the big book, you know, I had arrived. Um, I had that sense of ease and comfort and I found it from a variety of kind of party drugs. I mean, I smoked, once I started smoking weed, I smoked daily. In retrospect, I'm not sure I ever liked it. (laughs) I just came off in a meeting this week. I I got terrible paranoia with it um, and all these side effects, but I carried on doing it. Um, And the first time I took ecstasy was... The week after, there was a there was a really uh, famous case in the media here of a girl called Leah Betts who died taking ecstasy. She was a teenager um, in like the early mid nineties, and the week I first took ecstasy was the week she was in intensive care, and it was the same kind of pill that she'd taken. And I had all this anxiety that Leah Betts was in hospital, and it was on the news. It was a massive big deal, but I still took it. that still didn't stop me from saying yes to this. And as soon as the drug took effect, it was, you know, one of the best moments of my life I'd ever had, that that feeling of, of, um, you know, pure joy and love that I got taking ecstasy then was definitely a thing I chased with drug use after that. But, um, you know, drugs like Coke I took sociably to start with. We'd get some in... As a, as a group of friends and do it together and I'd look forward to that. Um, so there were definitely times when it was it was part of the party, mm. you know. I don't want When you it. say that it shut up your head, I think I know what that means, but perhaps for listeners who don't really quite know what we mean by that when we say that, what do you mean by that? 
I suppose I stopped dwelling on all the anxieties and anxiety is was and still can be a big thing for me. Um, but I'd stop replaying things or, yeah, worrying about stuff that might happen. And I felt um, sort of a weight lift, I suppose. And um, I felt, certainly with cocaine, I felt prettier, funnier, smarter, you know, all those all those kind of stereotypical things that it should give as a drug and perhaps before you get to the stage of addiction or um, it not being fun anymore. You know, that's why people take it, isn't it? You know, suddenly you're, you're a somebody. Um, and I definitely uh, got that for, for quite a while from the drug. But then the times in between that became something I couldn't cope with. Um, and chasing that feeling was something that I wanted. But So the times between using, you mean, became mm. more difficult? Yeah. And I, I didn't like how I felt, so I chose not to not to give myself that opportunity, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a shared experience for me in that I actually also remember taking ecstasy in the week after Leah Betts was in... Really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was already in the UK and I remember that and I was so, so anxious that, you know, it'd be a bad pill. <laughs> totally didn't stop me from taking it. I'd indeed taking another four or five that night, mm. you know, and also my head. It was the exact same thing, you know, that all of a sudden I'd feel a sense of inner peace that I just didn't know mm-hmm. existed otherwise. Question three, what were your worst consequences and finally your rock bottom? So here we are, you're using, you're mostly having a good time. What what happened? How did it progress? So again, I feel that I didn't tick the boxes of a lot of what I thought rock bottom was. Mm. Um, I still had a home. I still had a job. I still had a partner. Um, in fact, those three things on paper were kind of at the best they had been. I'd had a promotion at work that I didn't think would ever be available to me and suddenly I'm the boss and I'd spent years being resentful that I didn't have that. But it turned out that getting all these things didn't make me any happier. You know, I still had that um, sense of discomfort all the time. And I put pressure on myself to kind of uh, achieve and achieve and achieve. And I thought the only way I could do that was by putting a drink or a drug inside of me. But of course, that was not the case. Um, And it had kind of become all consuming by the end where I'd wake up in the mornings and I would have been in blackout the night before. So the first thought process would be what had I said or done? Um, and then I'd have the feelings of regret and bewilderment and not going to do it again. And I think I'll take today off. I'll definitely not do anything today. And I would find that by the time I'd left the house to go into the office, I would generally uh, walk a slightly longer way to the station than I needed to and I'd pass the Weatherspoons and think I'll have breakfast, that'll make me feel better. Um, and I'd find myself ordering a glass of wine. And for breakfast. For breakfast. And I used to qualify that by saying, I mean, I don't go into work till like lunchtime, so I'm talking about half 10 in the morning. Like half 10 in the morning is yeah. an acceptable time to yeah. have a glass of yeah. wine. Yeah. Um, But then I wouldn't want to turn up in the office drunk and I'd be embarrassed what people might think of me. So the solution I have for that is to do a line of coke. So by midday, I've done that. And then it's a day of sometimes I'd arrive with creative genius bursting out of me, or so I thought, and be like, we must do this, we must do that. Other days I'd arrive angry, you know, people never knew what they were going to get from me. And then the whole day would then sort of be based around um, chasing that feeling of basically normality. I think I was always striving to feel what I thought was normal and, you know, putting an upper in or a downer in. I mean, 
imagine if I'd just done nothing to start the day with, but that wasn't an option. You know, that wasn't a solution to um, how I was feeling. I think I, well, I know, I don't know why I say anything. I know that I felt like I became myself once I'd put a drink or a drug inside of me. Mm. I felt myself kind of come to life with that, but it was it was never going to be one, was it? Um, and yeah, doing that in the morning, you know, you're setting up what your day, what your life is going to be like. Um, I had a long-suffering partner who's not one of us. Um, so he's not an addict? He's not an addict. And actually it's been quite fascinating in recovery to now that I know more about what we're like as people, to see what a non-addict is like and how he might have, he might buy a single beer on his way home from work to drink mm. at home and he might well not finish it. <laughs> um, or, you know, his relationship is just completely different to what mine is with a drink or a drug. Um, or if we go somewhere and he sees a particular drink on the menu that he'd like to have and they don't have it, he'll say, oh, don't worry, I won't have anything. Whereas I might have started with a, a nice wine I liked the look of, but I'd have I'd have drunk, you know, the cider from the tap. But I, I wouldn't have cared as long as it was something. Um, so, yeah, very different behaviour indeed. But, yeah, by the time I came into the rooms, I was exhausted and uh, I'd been taking antidepressants for, I don't know, a year or two. Um, whilst also still using and while, drinking. Whilst using and drinking, whilst lying mm. to the doctor. Um and I'd had every blood test possible because I was convinced it must be like a vitamin deficiency. It's making me feel like this. It couldn't be the breakfast wine, you know. I've done that. Have you? Yes, I've done that. It's it's so common that we're so dishonest with ourselves and with other people. Um, it felt a lot to really look at the reality of what my drinking and using was. Um so before you came in, did you try any controlling? Did you, because I went through a phase where I thought, you know what, that's fine. I'm just going to, I've got a bit of an issue. So let me try and manage it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, you know what, I'm just going to use, say from 11 to 4 a four, four o'clock in the afternoon. And by the way, if you start <laughs> using without drinking or, or anything, if you start using at 11 in the morning, you've got a problem, mm -hmm. no matter which way you want to window dress mm -hmm. it. So did you do any of that managing? Oh, yeah. Um, Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I 100% believed that I hadn't quite got round to stopping. Like, I felt, I remember on my 30th birthday, which was a massive bender, um, thinking, oh, by the time I'm 40, I'll have, I'll have packed all this in. I pictured myself with the 2.4 kids and the career and the, the a car, you know, I still can't drive. Um, I, I haven't got children and didn't want children. So it was a weird fantasy that I was working towards there. Um, and I thought it was something that was within within my power and I hadn't got around to doing. But yeah, I, um, I stopped drinking uh, a few times for maybe a month or two and would be very public about that, um, letting people know how wonderful I was and how in control I was. But I would continue to use so the drinking was a public thing that I no longer did, but I would still be doing coke and I'd still be smoking weed to come down from the coke mm. um, or taking uh, prescription medications that were not my prescription um, because I didn't count those as drugs either. Um, so, yeah, definitely trying to stop drinking. Uh, I did the uh, only at the weekends. That never worked. Uh, I do the only in company that definitely didn't work because I I much preferred drinking and using alone for quite a, the last few years probably um people didn't drink or use like I thought they should that's unacceptable mm. um mm. so I'd go off to do it at my own pace yeah and then you came into the rooms was there a was there a, an event that brought you into the rooms an ultimatum from your partner or something like that no he was um incredibly um tolerant actually and it was only once I was in the rooms I realized and got to kind of the amends process that I really looked at um how hard I must have been to have to have been in a relationship with but um I'd known for years that something wasn't right 
And yeah, I was absolutely exhausted and I wasn't enjoying drinking or using. I was doing it against my will, as we say. Uh, it didn't bring me pleasure anymore. Uh, I probably got a bigger high waiting for the dealer to arrive than I did in taking the drugs. You know, the anticipation of feeling better outweighed how I ever felt. But actually, I had a, I made friends with somebody through work who's an American and would be in the country a couple of times a year. And after knowing him for a while, I discovered in passing that he was in recovery. And I'd never noticed this before, which fascinated me because in my mind, people in recovery are a specific sort of person, um, much like my view of the addict was. I had those preconceptions. And I found out this guy was teetotal and I started kind of asking him a question here or there. And maybe a year, maybe even two years later, when he was visiting, we were out one night, him drinking tea, me sneaking off to the toilets to shove yet more drugs up my nose. And he said something and I just looked at him and I, th I said, I think I'm done. And as we do, he got his phone out and said, right, let's find a meeting. <laughs> and... Um, I perhaps hadn't wanted a proactive solution. I think I said a lot of things when I was high that didn't carry an awful lot of weight to them. But the fact I'd said this to him, I think was the first time I'd actually asked for help. Um, so he found a meeting the next morning and I woke up the next day still feeling pretty drunk, pretty high, uh, regretting that I'd asked him, but I'm a people pleaser and this defect of character really worked in my favour in this case um, because I went to the meeting. It was an AA meeting. Um, it was a, a, a what Bill says, it was a Bill-centric meeting and I didn't really understand anything that was said. Um, I didn't feel uncomfortable in it. I was surprised at the kind of range of people that were there and everyone was very friendly. But I remember when we left, I said to my friend, um, but the guy that was speaking, his name isn't Bill. <laughs> because there's so much that we, there's so much language that we use in the meetings that I can see if you're new, it just doesn't mean anything. And, and let's also quickly explain it for the listeners who may not know Bill. Bill Wilson is the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous and um, the, the author of the book, mm. the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, by which we get well. And got well. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I think even that, you know, in most meetings, you'll find there are scrolls that have the 12 steps and the 12 traditions up. And I kept reading them, but the words weren't sinking in, you know. It's a whole new world that you step into, but there's, you're not expected to get it on day one. Um, you know, we, you hear a lot that it's a one day at a time program and just getting to that first meeting, not picking up on that day. That day, I was talking to my sponsor about this this week um, because it was my anniversary this week and he said, what are you thinking about today? I said, I'm thinking about that first day in recovery and how long it was and how going to an 11 a.m. meeting, the person I was with took me for lunch afterwards and not having a drink with lunch was alien to me. And then he took me on a wild goose chase hunt for a magazine he wanted to buy. It was, a, it was clearly a task that was to keep me occupied for the afternoon. And he threw in some general questions about my drinking and using. I didn't understand then that he was kind of 12-stepping me, that he was helping me to see, uh, you know, that I had a problem um, and also identifying with me and sharing back with me about stuff. And when he left me and I got the train home, there was a pub at the station and I can remember thinking, am I really not going to go in here? And then I got home and there were drugs in the house because there were always drugs in the house and thinking, am I really not going to do this today? But even just that kind of already people talking about that one day at a time, I was thinking, I think I can do today. And I wasn't really planning on doing the next day, but ticking that one day off felt accessible Um and that was very much how the first few months of my recovery continued to be, basically. Hmm. Slightly back to the rock bottom time. So for question four, which is, did you ever 
consider suicide? Did you want to die towards the end of you using? I mean, I definitely did, but I was not proactive about it in the sense that I've never made a suicide attempt. Um, I think I just thought that the using and drinking would slowly end me. Um, I didn't really think about the future. Uh, I was on antidepressants and, um, I mean, I won't lie, in recovery I've had suicidal thoughts, mm. not to the extent that I ever did beforehand, but I've had perhaps days or short periods where I felt overwhelmed by life 100% and I don't want to give the impression that, you know, there's a magic wand that means suddenly, you know, everything will be perfect forevermore. It's, life happens, doesn't it? We say that a lot in the rooms. Um, but what I have found is that these thoughts have become manageable and they've become something that I can put into the context of let's just get through today. The phrase this too shall pass is one you hear a lot as well. Um, and also that I'm really prone to feeling sorry for myself mm. and that if I do actually go to a meeting speaking it or phone a newcomer or do any of the suggestions that we're taught to get out of self and stop wallowing, which is something I love to do, um, then suddenly I realise that my brain has moved on from those thoughts and, um, you know, I, I, it, 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 that is, that, yeah, that has, has passed. Um, whereas prior to recovery, those periods would be quite extended and I just couldn't see a way out. Mm. I think that's, I don't think you come into the rooms if you can see a way out. No, really, do you? no, I didn't think so either. I think there is often a suicidal aspect, you now whether we really want to die or whether we accept that our drinking and using has become so acute that it may kill us. Mm. But I think it's, it's often, in one way or another, it's often there, as well, especially just before we come into the rooms. Mm. Uh, something that I felt very keenly, you know, in my own case, sure. Question five, and we've sort of touched a little bit on it uh, earlier. What other methods did you try to get sober before finding the rooms? So in my case, for instance, I also did hypnotherapy, in order to try and stay sober and, and you know, I ran a big exercise program and all that sort of stuff. Did you do anything like that? Oh, well, now that you've said that, yeah, I, I started <laughs> running. And, um, um, I mean, uh, before I get to the, the debacle that was my running career, um, I did, the, the, it does talk in the big book about the different uh, solutions that people try, mm. uh you know, only drinking at home, not drinking in the house, uh, swapping out the drinks that you have, uh, whether you check yourself into a facility of any kind, uh, which I didn't do. Um, but that, I think, was probably the only thing on that list that I didn't do. Um, uh, yeah, a lot of giving up things or putting boundaries in about when I would do them that I instantly broke. But the running is quite a good example of how powerless I was, actually. Um, I signed up for a half marathon with some colleagues and I would run in the evenings and I would run at the weekends. And what I actually did was I'd work out where would be 5K or 10K or whatever length of running I was on at that time so that it finished at a pub. And when I went out for my run, I'd put on a little bum bag that had like my phone and... Um, I don't know, like, well, it it would have a gram of coke in it because I already knew that the end of the run was going to end up in a pub and that I was going to do this. And it, So you ran your 10K with a gram of coke in your bum bag? Yeah, ready that, for after. Wow. And I, I didn't look at that as being weird. Like, I felt like... I'd done the thing that was good for me. I'd done the healthy thing. Um, and I was, you know, going to do this half marathon and I got sponsored loads for it. Um, 
but and then I'd get to like some pub and I'd change up which ones I went to. I mean, that was definitely part of my alcoholic behaviour was not drinking in the same place too often. So people didn't keep track like I thought they cared. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like other addicts and alcoholics to hear it, then please make the pesky AIs and algorithms work their 12th step. Hit like and subscribe. Like people behind the bar aren't serving alcohol for a living. You know, I thought with me, they'd be judging me. So I had a whole little roster of places I went to. Um, and after I'd had the first drink, I could start taking the drugs. And um, I'd end up such a mess that I'd, uh, you know, there was no way I was running home <laughs> again afterwards, that's for certain. And then get home stinking of booze, probably with a bee in my bonnet about something because I'd become a more and more kind of aggressive and... Uh, and antagonistic drunk um and then when I actually ran the half marathon I got so wasted the night before that I spent the entire run feeling like I was going to throw up and did a really rubbish time and I spent months months training for this but the night before I had no no power no power whatsoever to stop me from going out and you know ruining yeah. ruining something that I put so much work into. Yeah, yeah. It uh, reminds me of the phrase in the book that to the alcoholic, the alcoholic life seems the only normal one. Mm -hmm. It's only once we, once we finish, we realize how crazy this is. You know, yeah. running 10K with coke in your bum bag so that you <laughs> can go out afterwards or, you know, running a half marathon on, on, on after a bender, mm. essentially. It, it's, it is insanity. Yeah. Um, it's pure unmanageability. It's pure powerlessness. You know, I found step one easy to accept once I'd been in the rooms and heard people's stories and how that related to what step one is for us because I had all of these examples and they were all based on dishonesty as well. I'm going for a run. I'm a healthy person. I'm a functioning person doing this for charity. Look at me. Um, I'm running to the pub with drugs in my bum bag. <laughs> So you've come into the rooms and question six is, did you struggle with the word God? In all honesty, I didn't come in planning on staying, so I didn't overthink it. Um, I'm not from a religious background. I have neither a strong opinion for or against God. Um, uh, I didn't relate to it. I didn't think God would be a solution. But I wasn't offended by it. I just didn't overthink it. Um, and I, I did hear a lot of people saying, you know, it's a spiritual program, not a religious one. And uh, I suppose that is something, another precursor to recovery that I had done. I'm sure I dabbled with Buddhism and uh, various schools of thought that could bring this elusive peace to me um, while still drinking and using, of course. Um, so I wasn't, I didn't find it off-putting, but I didn't do anything to embrace it uh, or to pursue that. That kind of came with time once I'd been in the rooms and had started working the steps. And I was, I was willing and, it, and willingness is such a key part to starting and then staying and then progressing with this program. So I was, I was willing to not rule out that there may be a, a power greater than myself. Mm. And actually that's something I related to is when people said, is there any chance you are not the most important thing in the room? And that I could say, oh, look at me, <laughs> I'm a mess. <laughs> like, yes, perhaps I'm not the most important thing in the room, but I didn't, I didn't start thinking about what that other thing might be, just that it's not me was definitely enough to to make a, a solid start with recovery. Mm. You? Well, I struggled massively with the word God when I came in. I, one of the reasons why I came in not 18 months earlier, but rather when I did come in, was because I looked up online, you know, cocaine addiction, because I'd figured out, obviously, when it was pretty obvious that I had a cocaine problem and that mm. I was an addict. I mean, that was clear, um, even though I didn't want to admit to it, but it was, it was pretty obvious. <laughs> And you know, when you find yourself Googling cocaine addiction like 12 times in one month or so, then, you know, that should tell you something. And 
And but then I'd look at um, the steps, and I came upon uh, Cocaine Anonymous, and it said step three: decided to turn in our will over to the uh, over to the care of God as we understood Him. And for me, that was the end of the conversation because mm. for me, God was this punishing being guy in the sky with the beard and the laser beams. Mm. And so um, I had this massive hurdle to overcome, massive hurdle at the time. And that took quite a while for me to overcome that. It really did, but overcome I did, mm. thankfully. Question seven, how do you experience your higher power? On a daily basis, what that means to me is, it's so hard to put into words, isn't it? Um, it's the space between me doing what I would automatically do and then me doing something closer to what is the right thing to do. And I start my day quite informally, actually. I know a lot of people do kind of more fixed prayers um, that are part of the program, and I did do that earlier in my recovery. But in the mornings now, I have a conversation with what I'll call God, but something that's outside of myself. And I look at the day ahead, and I look at all the opportunities in which I am potentially going to be an arsehole because that is such a massive thing that I have to overcome to um, live a sober life, you know, and having done the step work and seen what my part has been in so many of the things that have troubled me and caused resentments or caused fears um, during my life, I know that there's action that I have to take to not continue to live like that. So I have a conversation with a power outside of myself where I ask to be of service during the day. I ask for a lot of the stuff that is in the prayers, you know, to bring comfort, to be helpful rather than to make things worse, which is my go-to, honestly. Like me putting what I want first, that selfish behaviour it doesn't have positive consequences. So for me, the conversation that I have with God is very much an opportunity before things happen to kind of seek guidance, I suppose. Uh, and then during the day, it's that pause, it's that breath um, that stops me from saying or doing something that later I'm going to have to do a step 10 on. Later I'm going to have to look at my part in. Uh, later I'm going to see that I could have done better to... Um, or that I've 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 caused harm in what I've done. And sometimes it's not for very good reasons that I do it. Sometimes it's that I don't want to make an amends later in the day. So if I can just keep my mouth shut now, I, I save myself that. That's when I'm not feeling close to God. That's when I'm feeling anger or hate or fear or any of these things. But I still quite often am able to not respond in the way that I used to and that for me is um is God's kind of presence in my day that little bit of space but I do have a I do have a quick anecdote about a more obvious God moment early in my recovery if you would if you'd like to hear this let's have it because I think a lot of the time what um what is nice is that I attribute the good things that happen to this God where I'll I'll acknowledge that that was God because that makes me want to keep believing, you know, and keep doing it. And before I attributed everything to, well, I deserve a drink, I deserve a drug. So now kind of acknowledging it. So when I was about three or four months sober, I was in the rooms, but I did not have a sponsor and I wasn't working the program yet. Um, I liked how I was feeling but I was in that middle ground that you hear us talk about. It's a quite a lonely place when you're not drinking and using, but you're not working a program, you know. It's a, a quite a lost space. Um, and I had a bit more money because I wasn't buying drugs anymore. And I said to my partner, let's go on holiday. And the obvious solution for this was to book an all-inclusive holiday to Mexico. Um, yeah, three or four months clean and sober, pretty certain that I can surround myself with, with free booze all day and we get there and on day one I wake up and I have the exact conversation with a power outside of myself that I just described and 
I thought, how about I don't have a drink with breakfast? Which to the non-alcoholic or drug addict might not sound like a big deal, <laughs> but Prosecco at breakfast at an all-inclusive holiday resort is something that I would have had mm. previously, no doubt about it, and felt that I deserved it because I'm on holiday. You know, there was a lot of that in my drinking and using. So I don't drink with breakfast. And then we go to the beach and my partner has a pina colada. Why not? He's on holiday in Mexico and I have a lime and soda. And I'm feeling, I'm feeling all right, you know. And we get through the holiday and I'm really taking it part of the day by part of the day. I'm not even doing one day at a time at this point. I'm doing the next obstacle is this and having this conversation uh, with God throughout this time. And we get to about day eight of the trip and we go on an excursion to a temple and on the way back, the driver announces that we're stopping at a tequila factory on the way back to the hotel. And my brain did what as its brain does. And within, I've been loving and so proud, almost smug of this sobriety at this point. And my brain goes, well, it'd be rude not to drink tequila in Mexico, wouldn't it? (laughs) And then my brain goes, and if you're drinking that now, you might as well have wine with dinner tonight because today's a write-off. You'll start again tomorrow. And then my brain goes, you've seen that person selling drugs around the pool. And I had because I thought it was like a superpower. I could clock people buying, selling drugs anywhere, you know. I was so attuned to it all the time. So I'm not, and why would I buy one gram? Because it's a bit dangerous in a foreign country. I should buy a few. So I'm, you know, don't, don't risk. I'd hate to get in trouble for doing this better. I just buy loads of drugs, right? This has happened in seconds in my head Um, and I've kind of accepted this inevitability and we're in the middle of nowhere and the coach goes around a bend and I see a white house and on the side of it in blue paint it's got the AA symbol and... In Mexico. In Mexico, literally in the middle of nowhere. I found out afterwards, I looked it up afterwards and um, there's a few of these, they're like the only place within miles and miles and miles that people can go for a meeting, you know, but it happened to be at that moment. And I thought, I've heard people say in the meetings, God will do for you what you can't do for yourself. Like, what am I asking for? What better sign? What better like, Charlotte, don't have that first drink because I've heard that, I've heard what one means. And I, I know enough, I've looked enough already without starting work with the sponsor to understand myself that one always leads to more. I've got that allergy of the body I hear us talking about in meetings. I know what's going to happen. And I've been sent this sign. Maybe it is coincidence. I don't care. Like, let it be a coincidence, but let me call that God and have that as a reason to keep believing. So I didn't drink or use that day. And I came back to the UK and I asked somebody I'd heard speaking meetings before um, who I had identified with uh, to be my sponsor. And I went through the steps and that was kind of, that was the catalyst. That made me stop just sitting in rooms and start doing the work because like, if, if that was God, they couldn't do more. Like, what am I waiting for? Yeah. Um, and if it wasn't God, then how nice did it feel that I thought it might be? Yeah. So let's, let's run with it. What a brilliant moment. Absolutely brilliant moment. So you got a sponsor, and that brings us straight to question eight, which is, which part of the steps were the most difficult for you? So, I mean, starting each one of them was the hard bit. Um, In my line of sponsorship, we do steps one, two, and three in one quick blast. five minutes after having my sponsor, I've done steps one, two, and three. Mm. Three being uh, kneeling in a raining park in Bermondsey saying the step three prayer with a man that I've hardly ever spoken to in the past. I am sponsored by a man that's uh, neither here nor there. There's lots of schools of thought on on all of this, but um, uh, in my case, I listened to that voice that I choose to call God and uh, I felt this person was the right sponsor for me. Um, And we've done those three. And I was then sent off to get myself an A4 lined book to start the step work with, uh, to start doing step four with. And once I had that book and had been given my first set of instruction, I wanted it and I'd said I would go to any lengths, but I didn't sit down that minute and start writing. So I'd really put off starting the work 
But I found, and again, in my line of sponsorship, the way we do it is you write one column and then you contact your sponsor to be given the next set of instructions. In step four. In step four, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a good way of meaning that you're in quite consistent contact with the sponsor um, and perhaps you feel that slight sense of pressure to get things done rather than just being left with a load of tasks. Um, but I'd find each time that once I started it, it just flowed. Um and none of it was difficult. You hear a lot of people talking in meetings about step four being difficult. Because and for the uninitiated, step four is where we make a, as the step says, searching and fearless inventory. It is. And of that, ourselves. Those words sound scary. Um, and there's quite a few parts to it, but they all come with instruction. You mm. know, this is why we have a sponsor. Mm. Um, I think if you just read, uh, through how it works in the big book and thought that you would can take yourself through it. I mean, I certainly wouldn't have got anywhere near the results that I have because it's a program where we learn from each other and we and we keep ourselves and each other sober by working in that way. Um, so step four, the sort of it I didn't like, but actually, I mean, I quite like talking about myself. So once <laughs> I got into the flow of it, I also, it stops it stopped being painful for me to look at these things and to see my part in it. Even before I'd finished step four, I could see a lot of what I'd experienced as being ridiculous. I could see that I'd held myself back with, you know, a lot of anger. I was angry at people for things they said to me in school. You know, I'd really held on to stuff. Well, I'm making a choice to to feel like that. And the way this was broken down for me, um, and the way it didn't feel like a personal attack against me, it was the work that everyone in the rooms is doing. And I'm looking at these people and I do want what they've got. Um, it, suddenly that became something I could do. And then the thought of making amends was not something I wanted to do. At step one, I decided perhaps I'd leave that out. Um, but the steps are in an order for a reason, you know. So at step eight, we we look at who it is we need to make amends to and... We're doing this as long as it's not going to cause harm. So you, again, work with that sponsor, identify these people, identify what you're going to say to them. You're making an amends for them, you know. It's really easy for us to be addicts and to sit there and wallow and be like, I did terrible things, please forgive me. I'm I'm so wonderful for saying sorry. Um, and if you're anything like me, people are probably a bit sick of hearing sorry. So... A lot of my amends are living amends uh, with my partner. That's really basic things like taking on the cooking and a lot of the cleaning and domesticated duties at home that I had neglected. I was very disrespectful in how I carried myself, you know, just expecting people to do stuff for me. The same at work, um, palming things off on other people, you know, taking responsibility, being accountable. That's something we really um, embrace in this program mm-hmm. and I think it's quite essential. Um, so that was all fine. But then with the later steps, I'll I'll be diligent with them and then life's going really well and I start to slack. So again, starting that process, making sure that I'm doing inventory, making sure that I'm reaching out to the newcomer, that I'm uh, sponsoring people, starting to sponsor people I found really difficult to start with, full of fear. I'm so important. What if I ruin their recovery? Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm just taking them through the the step, the twelve steps as outlined in the big books. Our colleagues anonymous. I'm not, I'm not being anything more than that to them. I'm sharing my experience with them. I'm hopefully offering some hope, you know. Um, but I had to get over myself to be able to do that. So yeah, I I don't think there was one step that I found particularly difficult, but I found beginning all of them and accepting that they were possible and that I could do them, I found that difficult with pretty much all of them. (laughs) Question nine. Now in recovery, which character defects give you most trouble? A lot of them like to surface. Um, I'm very lazy by nature, so that that can lead to all kinds of um, issues. Uh, that manifest in different ways. Um, I'm definitely still very self-centred and that shows itself in so many different ways. 
you know, wanting things to go my way, um, making things personal, making them about me rather than standing back and seeing the bigger picture. That is one that I find those conversations with God that I talked about are really helpful with. Um, because as soon as I start to feel that inner rage of being offended, I know, um, you know, it's like how you would train a pet. I, I know that I, at this point, have to offer myself the treat of speaking to God <laughs> and saying, "Am I being, am I being reasonable here?" Um, and taking that that moment to think about it. But um, my automatic traits are always lying there, so um, I feel I have the tools. We talk about having the tools to cope with things a lot. I have a lot more of those, but. Um, that doesn't mean that my first thought isn't often a, a self-centered one. Question 10, what is the best thing recovery has given you? The best thing that recovery has given me, it's such a, such a big spectrum of stuff, isn't it? That, like the really, really honest answer is the the best things I've got are the most basic things like like the peace of mind but often I say when I do a show in meetings like I go to bed at night with clean teeth in clean sheets not riddled with fear and self-loathing and I didn't even realize that I went to bed with unclean teeth and unclean sheets before because none of this was on my spectrum of things to worry about but I think that level of kind of self-respect that comes with sobriety after working a program has led to what one of the other biggest things is, which is the the what I'm able to give to the people in my life. So my partner now lives with somebody that behaves in that way. Um, yeah, p peace of mind, um, which doesn't always mean everything's shiny and wonderful, but it means that when it's not, I, I can see a, a way out of it. Um, but I live in the same flat. I have the same partner and I have the same job that I had when I came into recovery. But um, my partner always loved me, but I think they actually like me now. <laughs> and that flat is clean um, and it's maintained and I do things to make it a nicer space to live in. And I am so much better at my job. And I, I work in a creative industry. And I thought when I came into recovery that without drinking drugs, I wouldn't know how to be creative. I thought um, it's that real stereotype, isn't it? Of, you know, artists and musicians and people like it's rock and roll, isn't it? Like, where is my inspiration if I'm not getting out of my head? Um, and it turns out that like, I've got a head full of stuff that I want to be using. Um, and, uh, you know, I actually work in nightlife, which sounds like how my mum would describe it. But <laughs> I thought I wouldn't be able to kind of be in a nightclub environment around drinking drugs. I'd hated those things for years. I'd hated being around people. I would lock myself away in an office um, drinking and using alone in those environments. And I couldn't wait to go home to carry on doing those things by myself. And now, like, I, you know, I dance at my parties. I actually like, I've got a comfort in my own skin that I, I can't remember having had for a really long time. So I've got a big long list of all the things that are better in my life and those around me now. But, you know, I'm just, it was the right thing to do. I can't look at it any other way. It, I don't want to imagine what life would have, where life could have gone. Like I had so little little left in me that to be four years down the line from that point without recovery I, I don't have a picture in my mind of what that was so yeah I just we say it to death in the rooms but I'm so grateful I'm so grateful for what I've got um, it's an interesting thought experiment actually one I haven't really considered much which if I hadn't come to recovery where would I be now what would life look like now it's very interesting I'll get back to that in time, thank you. <laughs> Question 11. What would you say to a newcomer or someone wondering if they're an addict? 
my own experience is that if you're putting a lot of time into wondering if you're an addict, there's quite a good chance that there something needs to change. So my own experience was that I spent years doing those surveys, am I an addict? And I and I tick all the boxes, but that didn't persuade me um, that I was. And um, the big book of alcoholics talks about this, how hard it is for the alcoholic to accept that they are an alcoholic, uh, transfer that to addict if, if that suits you better. Um, and I look at all the time I spent questioning that and do wish I could have started this journey sooner. Though I do accept that, you know, things happen as they happen, don't they? Um, when I gave up smoking cigarettes, I read that Alan Carr Stop Smoking book. Um, other books are available. And I just, uh, and I stopped and I felt like it was the right moment for me to do that. And I do feel I came into recovery um, wanting this. And I know there are plenty of people that come in really wanting it um, and still relapse or leave the rooms. And uh, it happens and the rooms will be here waiting for you if that does happen, you know. That's not the end of your journey at all. So if, if relapse is part of your story, then that's part of your story in the past, isn't it? It's not it's not today. Um but I think the the moment when this started to come together with me was when I stopped trying to intellectualize it. I stopped trying to outthink recovery and just did what I was told. Um and that idea of surrender and submission it sounds like a weakness as, as those sort of words are used in kind of general context. They sound like a weakness, but there's so much strength in them. And when I started working with a sponsor and just did what I was told, um, and when I started having those conversations with God and not manipulating them to the end that I wanted them to be, that was when this stuff started to work. And still today, it's exactly the same as one day at a time program so just because I did that yesterday doesn't mean it works for me today so if you're new if you can just apply that to the day ahead of you now you know you're going to get that day under your belt aren't you yeah. that's going to feel nice mm. you know worry about tomorrow then question 12 and it's slightly tongue-in-cheek of course what do you want your higher power to say to you at the pearly gates I really don't have an answer for this. And I was I was thinking about it, like, why don't I have an answer for this? Um, I, I don't know if there's an existential reason and that I don't, what I believe in after all of this, maybe I've never given it any thought what, what will happen when um, that uh, machine flatlines and it's all over. <laughs> um, but I suppose I can look at it a bit more as in like, what, what do I want the end feeling to be? Um, and, um, you know, if I can look back on life and I feel the kind of contentment, which is a word that never appealed to me before recovery, by the way, because contentment sounds so boring, but actually it's wonderful, it's peaceful. Um, it's a drama, chaos-free uh, quietness that I've come to really appreciate. Um, I think if if I end on that note, then I'll be pretty pretty satisfied with things. But um, the voice that I talk to doesn't really dish out kind of um, well done's <laughs> or, uh, or 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 big statements. So I'm afraid I I, I can't finish on a, a grandiose statement of of what my my higher power will say to me as I reach those pearly gates. But I guess if I'm at those gates, then I've, I've done something quite well in recovery because um, I don't know those gates would have been inviting me on the path that I was on prior to this. So, uh, yeah, if I'm there at all, then uh, hopefully I'll be open to, to listening to what they've got to say. <laughs> Charlotte, thank you so much for your honesty, for your courage and for being a guest on 12 Steps and 12 Questions. Thank you so much. I am so grateful. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Grateful to be here. We've come to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed it and would like other addicts and alcoholics to hear it, 
then please make the pesky AIs and algorithms work their 12th step. Hit like and subscribe. While this pod is based on the 12-step recovery program, it's not officially affiliated with any 12-step fellowship. 12 Steps and 12 Questions is not substance or behavior specific, it's fully self-supporting and not for profit. And you know this next bit. It's not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization or institution. It does not wish to engage in any controversy and it neither endorses nor opposes any causes.